John chapter 6, beginning in verse 22, it says, On the following day, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there except that one which his disciples had entered, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. However, other boats came from Tiberias, near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into boats and came to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. Then they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. In this sixth chapter of John, beginning in verses 1 through 14, we saw Jesus feed the 5,000, proving that salvation brings satisfaction. In John chapter 6, verse 15 through 21, Jesus stills the storm, proving that salvation brings peace. Jesus will heal a blind man, proving that salvation brings light. In John chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, and Jesus will bring Lazarus back from the dead, proving salvation brings life. In chapter 11, verses 34 through 46, Remember what the Gospel of John is. The Gospel of John is a book about salvation in Jesus Christ. In this section of John chapter 6, Jesus is going to give a lecture or a sermon, often called the Bread of Life Discourse by theologians. Verses 22 through 31 gives us the setting for the sermon. It's sort of the introduction to the sermon. And the sermon will begin outdoors, and then they will make their way indoors, so that by the time we come to John chapter 6, verse 59, you'll note it says, These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Now, the people interested in food followed Jesus over the lake to Capernaum. And again, eventually they would meet in the synagogue. Jesus reveals their superficial, their carnal, their temporal motives in verses 26 through 27. And then Jesus will expose yet another fundamental ignorance. And that is, on what basis is a person saved? Is a person saved by works or by God's grace alone and faith alone in Christ alone, as it says in verses 28 and 29. All the signs that we have seen thus far, from the healing of the nobleman, the feeding of the 5,000, turning the water into wine, 
all of them have at least one thing in common. They were all intended to point the person to Jesus, to his identity, to his mission, to his message. And so, Jesus, listen carefully, performs the sign of feeding the 5,000 in order to give him an opportunity to preach a sermon. Why is that important to you? Because the New Testament testimony is this. Teaching is more important than miracles. The teaching is what he really wants to do. Now remember, Jesus has a ministry of grace and truth. In the opening chapter of John, remember, you'll remember, the Bible says that the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ in verse 17. In grace, our Lord fed hungry people, but in truth, he gave them the word of God. You know what's interesting? They wanted the food, but they didn't want the truth. And that should cause each and every one of us to pause for a moment and ask the question, what do I really want from God and what do I really want from Jesus? Am I interested in only what God and Jesus provides? And by the way, it's not wrong to want a provision by God. Jesus told us to pray to the Father, give us this day our daily bread. It's not wrong for you to want to have a job. It's not wrong for you to want to have a place to sleep. It's not wrong for you to make a provision for your family. But are, also, are you also interested in the truth? Most of them would abandon Jesus. Most of them will refuse to walk with him. In John chapter 6, this is the turning point, if you will, in Jesus' public ministry because literally thousands of people are going to abandon him by the time we get to the end of the chapter. In this very day, hungry people are interested in a Jesus who can provide for them to be a meal ticket. But they're not interested in the truth. They're not interested in worshiping Jesus, in following Jesus, in obeying Jesus. People are interested in food. My son's favorite channel is the Food Channel. I mean, what's not to love? You, you turn, tune in the Food Channel and you get to get all kinds of interesting information. Did you know that the can opener was invented 48 years after the can was introduced? Did you know that tea is said to have been discovered in 2737 B.C. by a Chinese emperor when some tea leaves accidentally blew into a pot of boiling water? The first European to encounter tea was the Portuguese Jesuit Jasper or Jasper de Cruz in 1560. Ice tea was introduced in 1904 at the World's Fair in St. Louis. The tea bag was introduced to the world in 1908 by a man named Thomas Sullivan. For those of you who get Lipton tea, he was the guy who was the founder of the Lipton Tea Company. Now, why am I telling you all of this? Because most of us take tea for granted. You got up this morning and you had some coffee or you had some tea. And when Jesus fed the 5,000, you have to understand something, that for many of the people who were in the Galilee and they came to the lake and Jesus multiplies the loaves and the fishes, this may have been the very first time in their whole life that they ate and ate and ate to the point where they were full. 
and they couldn't eat any more. That's not a problem for us, is it? All we have to do is celebrate Thanksgiving and Christmas. And we eat and eat and eat. All you have to do is go to a Chinese all-you-can-eat buffet. At least an hour later, you're hungry again. And that's exactly what happens here. The next day, the people are hungry again. So they go looking for Jesus again. They want To follow a prophet who will provide free food and political deliverance. They want another Moses, but they've missed the central message of Jesus and the mission of Jesus. They're missing the point of what Jesus is trying to say. Look again in verse 22. Why am I so hungry? It says, and we're going to read verse 22, 23, 24, and 25. Look what it says. On the following day, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea or the lake saw that there was no other boat there except that one which, Jesus, which his disciples had entered, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone, verse 23, however, other boats came from Tiberias near the place where they ate, and after the Lord had given thanks, that means the place where he fed the 5,000 after he had given thanks, And by the way, Tiberias is mentioned here and only here in the New Testament. Tiberias is a city that's on the western shore of the Galilee. If you have a Bible and you have maps in the back of your Bible, at the top of Israel, if if you're looking at your map and the Mediterranean Sea is to the left and the Dead Sea is down at the bottom on the the west side of of, of the Sea of Galilee is Tiberias. Now, the city was named for the emperor, Tiberius. It was during the earthly ministry of Jesus. It was a city founded by Herod Agrippa. And the city was allegedly built on the site of a graveyard, thus effectively rendering it an unclean city and keeping out the religious Jews. But this city gave Herod an opportunity to form alliances, to hand out political favors, And like I said, it doesn't appear anywhere in the New Testament except here. But it leaves me with the distinct impression that this is a city that Jesus would not have frequented very much. And then in verse 24, it says, When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into boats and came to Capernaum and underlined that seeking Jesus. And in verse 25, and when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Now, Jesus is conspicuous by his absence. And as is often in the New Testament, people will ask Jesus questions, but Jesus won't necessarily answer the question that they're asking. But rather, he will give the answer that he thinks that they need. Listen carefully. When they're asking the question, Rabbi, when did you come here? Well, what's the right answer? We've already read it in John chapter 6. The right answer is, he came there last night. And remember how he got there? He walked on the water. So here's what he doesn't do. He doesn't go, hey, you know, in the middle of the night, just for fun, I walked across the lake without a boat. Just to blow your mind. Just because I can. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't inflame their retarded, their corrupt, their perverse sensibilities. 
He isn't going to feed their fantasy. There had only been one boat docked there. The disciples took it across the lake. Jesus didn't go with them. Jesus stayed behind. The people thought Jesus was in another section or that he had gone somewhere by himself. And the fact that Jesus was was not close by didn't dawn on them until the next day. And the real answer to their question, he walked across the water, isn't answered. And you should ask yourself this question. Well, what, what does this mean? What does this mean to me? Well, the people knew that they had a need. And they wanted their needs met. Jesus had proclaimed that he could meet their need. And then he demonstrated that he could meet their need. He is speaking to them, thousands of them. And with a few small fish and a few loaves, he feeds 5,000 of them. And then he disappears. And their need was going to remain unmet unless they could find him. Because yesterday they were hungry. And today they were hungry again. Have you noticed that that's the case with physical food? That if you ate yesterday, there's something about today that you get hungry all over again. Things haven't changed all that much. Today people wonder, well, if Jesus is the Messiah, if he's really the Messiah, where is he? Why can't I get a job? Why does Jesus seem so absent and far away, especially in times of trouble? If Jesus is really the Messiah, why doesn't he pay my rent? Why can't I find a place to stay? Why can't I find food to eat? If Jesus is really the Messiah, why do so many children go to bed hungry at night? Why do so many children die from preventable diseases? Why are so many people suffering? Why doesn't Jesus solve the problem and why doesn't he do it right now? By the way, the answer in part is found in this passage. You see, God created us with the need to breathe and the need to drink and the need to eat and the need to procreate. God also created within us a hunger and a thirst to know him and to be known by him. And so the people sought Jesus. And that's not wrong. The people believed Jesus was the answer to their need. And that part wasn't wrong. It wasn't wrong to seek Jesus. And it wasn't wrong to even seek Jesus to meet needs. But they were they were following him for all the wrong reasons. And and the reason why this becomes important to you is because you should pause and you should ask yourself, what is it that you think that you need? I need food. I need clothing. I need shelter. I need a job. I need a Roth IRA. We think we need food. But what we really need is life. Food is the means to life. Life is a gift from God. Food sustains life. And Jesus is going to prevent something. He's going to present something here that's absolutely remarkable. Jesus is going to proclaim that he's the source of life. And he's not just the source of temporal life, but he's the source of eternal life. And on the surface, it, it, it appeared that they are ready to follow Jesus and they're ready to honor Jesus. But now Jesus is going to reveal their true motives. Jesus is going to reveal their true desires. There's a reason why I ask you to pray to Jesus to reveal your motives and to reveal your desires. 
I can't know your heart and I can't know what's going on inside of your heart. But Jesus knows what's going on inside of you. He knows what's going on inside of your heart. He knows what you're thinking. He knows what you're feeling. He knows why you're here. He knows why you wish you were elsewhere. And look what it says. In verse 26. Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. But these people were interested in the things of the flesh. Remember what the flesh is. It's everything that you are apart from God and and apart from Jesus Christ. Your flesh is everything that you are apart from Jesus. And so... Here's what we know. Jesus calls attention to their motives. He says, most assuredly, and look again in verse 26 where it says, Jesus answered them and said, most assuredly, there's a reoccurring statement in John's gospel. Over and over again, Jesus will say, truly, truly, verily, verily, most assuredly. It's his way of saying, this is the truth. This is the truth. It's an idiomatic expression in their language. It's Jesus' way of saying, what I'm about to tell you is absolutely true. Please pay attention. And he says, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. He calls attention to their motives that they are corrupt. He says... You want a temporary fix. And by the way, human beings seek a Messiah. Make no mistake about it. Whether you're an atheist, whether you're an agnostic, whether you're a Hindu or a Buddhist, no matter who you are, no matter what circumstances you face, each and every person wants another person naturally or supernaturally to deliver them. They want a Messiah, but they don't want to worship him and they don't want to serve him and they don't want to honor him and they don't want to obey him if it's Jesus. But if it's an earthly Messiah, if it's a Mussolini or a Hitler, if it's an Idi Amin Dada, If it's a human being, if it's a Kim Jong-il, if it's a human being in a totalitarian state, they will offer their love and they will offer their loyalty. They will offer their life and they will offer their livelihood. Even today, most people want what Jesus can give them. But they rarely want the truth. People want their needs met. You hear it all the time. I have unmet needs. People come to our church. How can you meet my needs? I have needs in the children's ministry. And we have have these needs and those needs and these needs and those needs. And don't get me wrong. It's not wrong for you to have needs. And it's certainly not wrong for you to want those needs to be met. But it is wrong if you base your friendship and your fellowship and your relationship with God and Christ on the basis of the absence or the presence of those unmet needs. Human beings are, for the most part, selfish and self-centered. 
we are, for the most part, not interested in honoring Jesus, not interested in serving him, not interested in making him known to a lost world. And the thoughts of the crowd was on how wonderful it was to be saved from hunger, how wonderful it was to be delivered from an empty stomach, how wonderful it was to have their needs being met. Here was a Savior who could be their meal ticket. Here was a Savior who could be their social security policy. Jesus could meet their physical needs and protect them from enemies, foreign and domestic. A friend of mine recently wrote in, a, in his newsletter that if Jesus came to solve the problem of world hunger, he failed miserably. If Jesus came to solve the problem of inequity and the lack of justice, he failed miserably. If Jesus came to right every wrong and to level all of the playing field, then he failed miserably. But if Jesus came to bring you hope and bring you life and provide forgiveness of sin and reconciliation to the Father so that you could experience life and hope and a real, true hope of eternal life, then he succeeded tremendously. The question Will you love him and serve him and obey him and worship him if the mortgage isn't paid tomorrow? Will you love him and serve him and adore him and worship him if they come and they take away your car? Will you love him and serve him and adore him if the people that you love the most disappear? Will you love him and serve him and minister to him and worship him if you get a call tomorrow and the doctor gives a diagnosis that you have terminal cancer and that you almost certainly aren't going to live? Pay close attention. The people were focused on the things of the earth, on material things, on personal possessions. They were focused on their flesh and they were focused on satisfaction. Blaise Pascal, that great French philosopher, spoke of our struggle. He wrote, true religion must teach that there is in man some fundamental principle of his greatness as well as some greatly rooted principle of his misery, unquote. In other words, greatness and misery is a perfect description of our mixed motives. We have within us the ability to exercise and express great artistic talent and at the same time engage in shameless self-promotion, shocking cruelty, selfish ambition. The Roman philosopher Seneca said, and I quote, Man gazes at the stars, but his feet are in the mud. How is it possible for us to be so wicked and corrupt and dirty and at the same time look longingly into heaven? We fear our own hearts. And each of us is only one sentence away, perhaps even one word away from destroying life's most important friendships and relationships, for destroying our reputation, for ruining our marriage, for causing our friends to abandon the friendship. No wonder Jeremiah wrote and he said that the heart of man was desperately wicked. And who can know it? 
Alexander Solzhenitsyn said, the line between good and evil isn't drawn through the human race, but it's drawn through the human heart. What's inside of your heart? What is going on inside of your heart? No wonder Martin Luther said he feared his own heart more than he did the Pope in Rome. Jesus says in verse 27, look what it says. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. Jesus invites the people to eat food that endures forever, and he makes this incredible statement that he is the source of that everlasting life. He is the source and the sustenance because God has set his seal on him. Do you care about the identity and the mission of Jesus? Do you recognize Him and acknowledge Him as the Son of God? Do you worship Him and praise Him for who He is? Have you offered your life to Him? Do you see that all things belong to Him and are due Him? Or do you continue to see Him as the one that you get from rather than you give to? We should ask the question, Why do I work so hard for meaningless things? And again, look at verse 27. It bears repeating, do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life. Jesus is going to contrast, note, the food which perishes with the food which endures. Listen carefully. There are two kinds of labor that he talks about. There are two kinds of hunger that he talks about. There are two kinds of food that he talks about. One physical, one spiritual. One temporal, one eternal. And the word labor, by the way, is used figuratively. It means an earnest, intense desire and an effort to obtain something. In this case, the earnest, intense effort is to be made to secure and procure everlasting life, salvation for your soul. And, and Jesus is trying to make the point that the vast majority of people are more interested in their stomachs than in their, than in their hearts. They're more interested in the temporal than the eternal. Remember, Jesus told the people in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, He said, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body. What you will put on is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Not if you watch the Food Channel. All of life is about food. It's about shopping for food. It's about finding the food. It's about preserving and refrigerating the food. It's about the nutritional content of the food. It's about cooking the food. I know you guys are going, Stop! I'll do whatever you want. I'll come forward. I'll pray the sinner's prayer. But it's too close to noon. Stop. We seek food that perishes. We watch the fashion channel. 
We center our thoughts and our energy and our efforts at the moment at at hand. We seek to feed our souls with feelings and pleasures, with comfort and ease, with plenty and more, with recognition and honor, with position and power, with fame and self. And the Bible says that such self-seeking is foolish and vain. It will pass away. Our days are not guaranteed. Our time will go by quickly. And the older you get, the more you understand how quickly the time will go. The 1930s become the 1940s, become the 1950s, become the 1970s. And somewhere between 1977 and 1993, there's this disco gap. As if the whole world just sort of shut down. But the older you get, you begin to understand something. There are two things that we desperately need to hear and heed. Two timeless truths. Two permanent principles. The first is that the things of this earth, with all their pleasure and feelings, do not satisfy. If sexual pleasure and sexual activity was the most important thing that could possibly take place, you would expect for the prostitute to be the happiest person in the world. Is that your experience? You would expect that if money, rather than being the the root of many evils, becomes the satisfying solution to the problem at hand, then it should be that the richest person you know is the happiest person. Is that true? Is that true in your life? Is having more and more and more filling the void? In Isaiah chapter 55, verse 2, it says, Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? I like the old King James. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come you to the water. He who has no money, come, buy, and eat. In Isaiah, it's an invitation. It's an invitation to be satisfied in God. It's an invitation to find fulfillment. Peace, forgiveness, hope. But we're left empty, unfulfilled, hungry, dissatisfied. We want more and more and more. James talks about it in James chapter 4, verse 2. He says, you lust and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasurers, adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Then why do we spend so much of our time cultivating a friendship that will lead nowhere? And that's the second principle. The things of this earth and its pleasures and its promises will pass away. Everything on this earth will crumble. It will disappear. The chair that you're sitting in The floor that's holding up the chair. The old coal mine that this building sits on. The earth is going to open up one day and it's going to swallow the building and everything in it. And then the earth itself will pass away. 
Do you realize that the only evidence in the universe that will remain forever, that human beings ever had a miserable existence on this miserable planet, are the holes that are found in the Savior's hands and the hole that is found in the Savior's side and the hole that is found in the Savior's feet. It will be an eternal testimony to the reality that human beings were once here. And the full and final testimony is that they killed their Savior. In Romans chapter 8, verse 5, it says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit, for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Do you want life? Do you want peace? then life and peace are found in Jesus. Hope and forgiveness are found in Jesus. Friendship and relationship is found in Jesus. No wonder in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, John would later write, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away. And the lust of it. But he who does the will of of God abides forever. And what is the will of God? It's to believe that the Father has sent the Son. And look at the end of verse 27. Because God the Father has set His seal on Him. On this last trip to Israel, we had the great privilege of seeing some of the great archaeological ruins in Bet Sheen and the city of David and, and Tel Megiddo. And in the ancient world, people would have seals. And, and on those seals, they would typically be on a ring and it would have an inscription and it would be made of stone or glass. And they would take the seal and the seal was to guarantee the contents of what it, whatever the seal was. When I was a kid growing up, we had a, a commercial on TV uh, that for for different cleaners. And if it had the good housekeeping seal, you knew you could trust it. Here, when Jesus says, because God the Father has set His seal on Him, it's Jesus' way of saying that His message, His miracles, His words God guarantees that Jesus is the Messiah. God guarantees that Jesus is in fact the person who can give the food that is abundant, that will last forever. God guarantees the content of the message. God guarantees that the testimony of Jesus is true. And remember in John chapter 4, verse 14, earlier, Jesus said, Whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of, of water springing up into everlasting life. And look what it says in verse 33. It says, For the bread of God, it just skip down for just a second, in, in chapter 6, verse 33, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. So how do you satisfy your hunger? Look at verse 28. 
they begin with a question, another question, and, and now a right question. What shall we do that we may work? Look at that because it's singular. It doesn't say works. What is it that we shall singularly do? What is the work? Or, and then the works of God. That's plural. In John chapter 6, verse 28. Remember what the religious leaders are. These are Jews steeped in a life of religious effort. They're convinced that acceptance by God is based on a series of special works appointed by God. A religious system based on duty and observance. Just like some of you. You believe that friendship and relationship with God is based on a series of special works appointed by God, a religious system based on duties and observances. I'll go to church. I'll read my Bible. I'll pray. I'll go to church. I'll read my Bible and pray. Now, trust me, I want you to go to church. And I want you to read your Bible. And I want you to pray. But the moment that you have it in your head that going to church, reading your Bible, and pray earns you brownie points in heaven, and that God now has a religious obligation to let you into heaven, then something is terribly, terribly wrong. What shall we do? Jesus answered. Look what it says in verse 29. Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work, singular. This is the work of God, that you believe in Him, whom He sent. Who did God the Father send? He sent the Son. So that you could have life. God the Father sent God the Son to be born of a virgin, to live the life that you couldn't live, to die on the cross for your sin. And then He rose from the dead to prove His identity. The Jews were preoccupied with works, plural. The religious leaders thought that Good works, good deeds would win approval and acceptance. They, if they lived a good and a decent life, if they were moral and just, God would save them. And the food that they would receive would be satisfactory. We tend to see people in three different categories. Good people. Bad people. That doesn't mean you're the bad people and you're the good people, by the way. I could just as easily have said bad people. Good people. Good people, bad people. Oh, you guys are always winding up on the bad end of the stick, aren't you? That's Jesus. Good people, bad people, compromised people. That's the three categories. Good people are the ones who live good, moral, just lives. Bad people live immoral lives and unjust lives. Compromised people are sometimes moral, sometimes immoral, sometimes just, sometimes unjust. They're right on the edge. They're on the verge of securing God's blessing and approval. They're close, but they're not quite close enough. And if they could just do a few more good deeds, if they could just be a little bit more moral, if they could just secure just a little bit more activity, then they would receive the approval and the acceptance of God. But Jesus desires to correct the thoughts of their concept of salvation by good works. Your goodness, your badness, and your, comp your compromised circumstances have nothing to do with the approval or the disapproval of God. The acceptance or the non-acceptance of God. You are approved by God and accepted by God on one basis and on one basis only. And that is because you've come to a saving knowledge 
of truth through Jesus Christ the Lord. You've received Him. You believe that God has sent His Son. And the response of Jesus is shocking. Faith is the source and the force of approval and acceptance by God. And look what Jesus does. He makes the source and the force of approval of faith being not just any faith. It's not just Hinduism or Judaism, but it's confidence in himself that he is the one that God has sent. And his answer is simple and everlasting. On my radio program, I received a, uh, a letter this week from a person who accused me of easy believism. A woman had called the show and said that she had received Christ many years ago, but in rebellion and disobedience, she had ceased serving the Lord. And in her rebellion and disobedience, she realized that she needed to come to the Lord. And she asked the question if she needed to be saved all over again. And I said, no, you don't have to be saved because all over again. Salvation is by grace alone, it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. It's through faith alone in Romans 3.28 and Christ alone in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. You don't have to get saved over and over and over and over again. The Bible says in Romans 3.20 and Galatians 2.16 because by the works of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight. A person who's received Christ who in wickedness and sin and rebellion have turned their back on Christ needs to remember and repent and turn from their sin and follow Jesus Christ. Believism? Yes. Easy believism? Easy? Is it easy to believe that God sent His Son? Is it easy to believe that Jesus is both God and man? Is it easy to believe that you can be accepted only on the basis of your friendship and relationship with Jesus? That is not easy because ask Oprah. Oprah will say, I don't believe it. I just can't believe it. I can't believe that Jesus is the basis by which we're accepted or rejected by God. You better believe it. Gerald Borshett writes, On the one hand, a person cannot earn acceptability with God by working for it. On the other hand, acceptability with God cannot be on the basis of belief in a mere theological formulation about God. It's his way of saying... You can't just simply intellectually acknowledge the facts surrounding Jesus. Jesus came. He died. He died on a cross. He rose from the dead. Devils believe that, it says in, in James's little epistle. The devil believes that Jesus was born of a virgin. The devil believes that he lived a perfect, sinless life. The devil believes that he died on a cross. The devil knows that he rose from the dead. Is the devil saved? No. And so he writes acceptability with God is a relationship God gives in Romans chapter 6 verse 27 therefore and both believing and obeying are parallel ways that you acknowledge dependence upon God and you will acknowledge dependence or you won't you will continue to live a life of immaturity and disability if you define your friendship and your relationship with God only on the basis of what He can provide for you. You may not have a job tomorrow. Will you still love Him and serve Him? 
your mother, your father, your brother, your sister may die tomorrow, will you still love him and serve him? Will you love him and serve him on the basis of who he is instead of what he can give you? By the way, Chuck Swindoll says, and I quote, Jesus answer nudges them toward an understanding of his identity. He's letting them know that he's the Messiah, the promised one, in whom they're to place their faith, in whom they're to pledge their allegiance. But the crowd reacts with, prove it! Skepticism. Look at verse 30. Therefore they said to him, what sign will you perform then that we may see it? And believe it. And believe you. What work will you do? Oh, but that's for next week, isn't it? What will it take for you to believe? On what basis will you understand and appreciate who he is? Will you love him and serve him and follow him? Will you in rebellion and disobedience continue continue to live your life as if he doesn't matter? Come to him. Remember him. Love him. Serve him. Heavenly Father, we pray that, Lord, you would examine our hearts. Lord, do we have corrupt motives? Do we have a divided heart? Lord, are we loving you and serving you on the basis of what you give to us? Or are we loving you and serving you on the basis of who you are and what you've done? Heavenly Father, I pray for each and every person who is here. Lord, I pray that instead of being resisting and rebellious that in humility and submission we would love you and adore you that we would sing your praise and that we would honor you and just like Job that we would say the Lord gives and the Lord takes away blessed be the name of the Lord Lord we will honor you in spite of the pain, in spite of the difficulty. And Lord, even if for whatever reason we don't have a job tomorrow and, and there's not food on the table tomorrow, Lord, we will love you and we will serve you and we will honor you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's.